This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hey, beer lovers, welcome back to another episode of Pints and Perspective. I am excited to have my friend, Andrew Barrett, with us to offer another perspective on our narrative reading of divorce and remarriage. So thanks for being here, Andrew. It's good to be with you. Happy anniversary to Wellhouse Church. Yes, actually, we are recording this on September 27th, our one-year anniversary. So thank you. Thank you to all of our uh, great people who supported Wellhouse Marketplace and did all the things that it made for a great one-year anniversary and a great launch of our store. So it was good. It was good. All right. And just a disclaimer. Andrew has a, uh, a little newborn at home. So if you hear some crying in the background, it's, it's, it's just Phoebe Joe. It's my six-week-old amen corner. That's right. That's right. Okay. Good deal. Well, and Andrew actually has a beer that he's going to tell us about. I do. Yep. It's a, uh, I heard you say last week, Colorado was the craft beer capital of the country, yep. which I can neither confirm nor deny because the last time I was there, I, I couldn't drink. I wasn't old enough. Yeah. Fort, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado is the brewing capital of the U.S. Well, then uh, the, then consider North Carolina at an embassy or something because yeah. there's a, there's a pretty impressive selection, as you well know. So this, uh, this is called Surf City Sunrise. It's going to be backwards, so bad video, but it's by salty turtle brewing co i've had something from salty turtle before i'm trying to remember where they are they are in Cary, north carolina i looked up where that was when i bought this and i have since then forgotten so you know (laughs) if you're a geography buff viewer or listener just look it up yeah but it's in north carolina it is a new england ipa i bought it for the express purpose of having it with tortilla soup. Mm -hmm. So it was trying to find an IPA. I'm just not a lager guy, which that's the other kind of, I say I'm not a lager guy. It's just not my first instinct. Yeah. So So it was like, okay, what's something with me in the past? And that's a lager. Right. Um, it's been years since I've had one of the, and they're, they're in North Carolina, Texas, you jerk. (laughs) Yeah. But they're, uh, Shiner box are in North Carolina. Oh, are they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're here. Um, so it was like, okay, what'll go with kind of the fatty content and just the the heavy spice and and the stuff I was reading was uh, a little hoppier than the average bear as yeah. far as a IPA is concerned, and then citrusy. So it's you can imagine how I felt when I picked this one up off the shelf, and the description said. Um, let this tropical juice bomb whisk you away with bold aromatics of pineapple, mango, and starfruit. Pronounced hop bitterness with notes of Fuji apple on the finish complement smooth lactose on the palate. So anyway, that was like, well, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, so I have had it before. This won't be first tasting, but it's it's delicious. So. Okay. Awesome. Well, I have an IPA as well. This is from Odell Brewing, which you guys all know we love. This is the Fresh Grind IPA. It's, oh, you didn't tell us your ABV on yours. Oh, um, let's see. Let's see if I can find ABV. 
You keep talking while I'm looking it up. Oh, never uh, mind. I found it. 6.6 okay. .6 ABV. 6.6. .6. Okay, so you're pretty close to mine. I'm 6.0. And the description of mine is, Rupture was born out of our obsession with getting the most out of each and every hop. In fact, we built a machine in our brewery to incorporate a unique fresh grind process. By grinding the whole hop, we rupture the lupulin inside, releasing the oils that give beer its flavor. So I've never had it. I'm excited. So cheers, buddy. Cheers. And I'm gonna, don't we open it like right next to the mic? Yeah. Yep. Now, you're learning. You animals go right out of the can, but some of us are um, of, of finer tastes. Oh, so, apologies. Apologies. Oh, hold on. Let me appease the ASMR. That's right. Listeners, viewers. I don't know if this will pick it up. It's it's slight. Look at that. I mean, how could you? How do you just go straight from the can? When, right, I'm sitting here right next to mine. I'll grab mine too. Use a glass like an adult. Are you a 22 year old at a tailgate? No, but apparently I'm a 28 year old bachelor who <laughs> uh, just enjoys beer from a can. Sometimes I'm about the simple life there, buddy. Grow up. <laughs> fair point fair point you tell clayton i said the same thing uh, uh or you could just tell him in your <laughs> in your weekly in your weekly poking fun at him i don't do it every week <laughs> <laughs> all right so this is called pints and perspectives and for the last i don't know i think we're on like week five now for the marriage and divorce part maybe week four uh, you've really only heard my perspective and I'm not shy about it. My perspective is very much so given over to my experience of going through a divorce and reading the narrative. Um, and so Andrew and I were talking, uh, what was it last week, I guess? Yeah. Either last and, week, last weekend. And he, he has, and I will affectionately call it a more faithful reading of some of the narrative. I'm much more cynical when it comes to the narrative. Um, and like I said, that's, definitely because of where I'm coming from and my own experiences with going through divorce and, and praying for restoration, all those things. So I'm much more cynical with my reading, but I do think Andrew's reading as he was pointing out some of the things is helpful. So I'm going to let him kind of walk through some of that today. I think it's important to clarify that the big point of departure when we were texting about this is just how to make sense out of the mass divorce mandate at the end of the book of Ezra, because that does raise some pretty enormous questions about divorce from a canonical perspective. Yeah, Is it's, it just it's, a, it's kind of the smoking gun you have to deal with. Yeah, you know, so is it a just rank contradiction of basically the entirety of the canon from there? Yeah. Is there a is there a way to synthesize it or at least make sense out of it beyond kind of like what I told you, just punting to it's a contradiction. Right. And, you know, not to get into the weeds of hermeneutics, but part of that just depends on if you're coming to the text with a hermeneutic of suspicion, which is, you know, what some circles consider it, or incidentally, what Richard Hayes, who I know y'all are consulting with, calls a hermeneutic of trust. Right. Um, so the starting posture with the text is a trusting posture, right. and that applies to all kinds of things. Um, so that's where I want to start, and then we can think canonically or you know 
narratively. That's a horrible adverb. Sorry about that. From there, um, about why does God or perhaps not God instruct his people to divorce their foreign wives? And there's actually a really important ethical conclusion to draw from that if we understand it in what I think is the the most appropriate way. Um, First, I went back and refreshed my memory (laughs) with with the book of Ezra. I've been reading the Old Testament a lot, but Ezra Nehemiah hasn't hasn't, uh, quite made Andrew's devotional life in a while. And it's important to remember that that mandate comes on the tail end of a covenant renewal. I, I would start to call it a ceremony, but it's something that spans several months in the life of at least in the reading, it is a ceremony. It's it's a, a it's a restoring of a new covenant, a, a return, a repentance. It it feels ceremoniously. There are festivals that come with it. That's why it spans mo- those months. Like, it, yeah. I, I think you're. I think that's a fair reading of it. So the governing context is this remnant of Israel mm-hmm. returning to the promised land because of an edict of Cyrus. Right re-pledging their faithfulness to their covenant God. And you get kind of the big three as far as covenant renewals are concerned. Before we get there, we also have to talk about the context, right? Most people, when we talk about the second exile, they think all of the Jews go into exile. That's just not the case. Part of what we're dealing with is there's the majority of the Jews go into exile and there's the rest of them that are just kind of scattered around and they intermarry with the four. And then when Cyrus gives the edict and they all come back, now we've got this problem because you've got these kind of faithful Jews, if we could call them that, that were in exile together, holding each other accountable. And then you've got all these kind of dispersed Jews sure. that are intermarried and now they have this mixed faith. And so that's, that's the context that Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to wrestle with and how, to, how do I deal with these two people groups that are both a part of the people of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you get kind of your big three as far as a covenant renewal ceremony is concerned. In chapter six, you get both the completion and the dedication of the new Jerusalem temple. Mm -hmm. In chapter seven, or excuse me, you get that and, I said both and forgot to give the and, and you get the celebration of the Passover, Mm -hmm. which as Dr. Steve Reeve famously said, when they take Passover, pay attention um, because that almost always means kind of hitting the restart button on covenant relationship. And the third is, and this is where chapter seven begins, is that Ezra is commissioned to learn and teach the law. Right. So that's your big three, temple, Passover, law. And that's not unique to Ezra. Uh, When Josiah institutes his reforms, incidentally, you also get those exact same three things. In 2 Kings 22, verses three through seven, They rededicate the temple in chapter 22, verses 8 through 20. Joseph discovers and learns and then propagates, promulgates, whatever the word is there, the law. And then in chapter 23, they celebrate the Passover. So this, when you see those three, this is the people of God recommitting themselves to the Lord God and in a way, vice versa, though it's really more the former than the latter. Now, there's only two times that we can get that because there's only two buildings of the temple. Sure. So it's only a twofold pattern. So we could say that it's instituted and then Ezra's just following what was, or are you saying that you think this is like 
this is something they've developed that these things must occur in order for covenant renewal. I don't know that must occur in order for covenant renewal to be taking place is the best way to put it, but they generally did, okay. especially because so much of what was happening during the exile, or if you want to say before the exile, was the temple being defiled right. in one way or another. Then one way that you do that, and this carries over into the New Testament, is you purify the temple and you rededicate it to the Lord that what it was meant to inhabit. So in that setting, and really almost as the cherry on top of all of this, if you're thinking narrative flow and mass divorce comes at the end, you get this, I mean, Ezra's pretty grieved by it, that the people of God are married to foreign women. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, he prays, and that this is a that this is a decision born of prayer for him perhaps does not count for nothing in determining God's approval or lack thereof of this. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that nowhere in here does he say that God told me to tell you to yep. divorce. And we'll people. touch that because I don't necessarily know that that means anything <laughs> for lack of a for lack of a more articulate I mean, way got, of putting when it. When you've got an Old Testament narrative, that consistently, even in narratives of, or problematic narratives, like Canaanite conquest narratives, genocide, you know, all these things that are there, it frequently says, and God said, or and yeah. God commanded. So I actually think it, it kind of, it, it's kind of interesting when it doesn't say that. Yeah. Now, it, doesn't, it doesn't count for everything, but it doesn't sure. count for nothing. Sure. Well, I'll skip around in my notes then and just talk about that. Think about, and this is doing the canonical work, think about the stories of Ruth and then particularly Esther. Mm -hmm. In Ruth, God is mentioned seldom, and even more seldom is he mentioned as someone who's intervening in the story. Right. And yet it's clear that the author of Ruth wants you to see, what is it we call it, the divine passive? Yep that even though God's not orchestrating these things, God is orchestrating these yeah. things. And that's particularly prevalent in the book of Esther, where God is not even referenced once. Right. Neither Elohim, your Yahweh, nor right. Adonai, none of those no, things, not one time. So am I to interpret Esther as a series of happy coincidences? Well, it is interesting because even in Esther they're pretty given over to a pagan ethic. I mean, there's a lot of debauchery. There's a lot of drunkenness that goes on. There's a lot of conniving, a lot sure. of murder. I mean, right. So there's no, totally so you don't have any, um, of the law. also not to mention that you know, Esther marries a foreigner. Right. So all that tells me is be careful who you make your moral exemplars in Old Testament <laughs> narratives. Yeah, fair. But that's true of texts that God is overtly involved in. You know, King David, a man after God's own heart, also yeah. make him your moral exemplar in That's fear right, and in trembling. Right. Yeah. I think Esther wants us to see things like Mordecai having the best timing in the world at the gate as yeah. orchestrated. For Esther being where she is at a time such as this yeah, as a, orchestrated. So God's not mentioned happen. once, and yet... I think we're invited to see him and the reversal of Israel's fortunes. They go from being a people who were about to be destroyed under Haman's edict to people who, excuse me, consequences of drinking beer on a podcast, I guess, is burping. Yeah. 
to people who are then kind of the conquerors, as it were. And if anything else, the fact that everyone is so morally ambiguous further invites seeing God involved in keeping his people alive, despite the fact that the law is more or less a foreign concept to them. And speaking of the law, and maybe this can help us get into the actual foreign wives thing, they do attribute what they're doing as being in obedience to the law. And unless we want to assume that Israel, or at least Ezra, has a remarkably lower view of scripture than the psalmist of one of Psalm 19. Here's what that says, and I won't quote it in full, but just the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So even if we don't get a God commanded it, we get a, the law says, do not marry foreign wives. And for the people of Israel, or at least for their leaders in this moment, that would have effectively been, as we say about the scripture, the word of God to the people of God. Yeah. And the parts of the law that forbid marrying foreign women cannot be called obscure by any definition. It's in Deuteronomy. <laughs> right smack in the middle of Moses's coup de grace before he kicks it and sends his people off ahead of him. And so even if they had canon within the canon, Deuteronomy was in that canon. Yeah, and I mean, it's in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4 that we get, and I'm, you shall not intermarry with foreign women, for they would turn away your sons from following me. And it's not even just that they would, it's that they did in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we don't, Moses does not specify if it's the Moabites or the Ammonites or whoever. It's just the people in Canaan are sacrificing their children. Yeah. And then what does God say in Jeremiah 19, which incidentally I am reading devotionally, but that Israel has been participating in that. They've been sacrificing children. And he expressly says, I did not tell you to do that. Um, so it's not even that they were trying to prevent a risk that perhaps they were over inflating. Yeah. It's that this actually happened. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the only, the only question that would come to mind for me in that is, it would be a question of, you know, the Pentateuch and the documentary hypothesis. Sure. How much of the law is actually written and collected at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? Because I, I think you know this for me. I think Ezra and Nehemiah do mass revisions of the church. Sure. Um, I, I just, I think so much, especially Levitical law. And like, I, I mean, Numbers 25 is thrown in there in a very weird way. It's, it's kind of endogamy related. Um I think the Genesis one narrative of, and for this reason, a man will leave his father's house and be joined to his wife. I think that's an Ezra and Nehemiah revision process possibly. Mm. Um, I think they, they have littered it with revision. Sure. Now I will also say whether they did it after the fact or before it's still made it in. And so we still got to do something with it, but I don't want it to be lost on anyone that like, Hey, Ezra and Nehemiah could have added that. Like, because then we're only talking about the Ezra passage right now, right. but Nehemiah does this again at right. the end of Nehemiah. Right. So there's a, there's a lot that could be at play there about the question of, and I mean, 
depending on the documentary hypothesis you subscribe to, it's very possible that each tribe has their own version of the Pentateuch that Ezra and Nehemiah kind of gather them all back together and join them into one. So it could very much so be that there are some of them that don't know, which would also kind of lend itself to the fact that even in Jesus's genealogy, we have foreign women included. Um, so I do think there are some things there that are worth picking apart. Well, let's talk about foreign women, because that will actually help us draw just kind of an ethical conclusion that's important to make, even if it's not exactly what we're talking about. Because even in the ancient Near East, to be of a certain culture, all but guaranteed a set of gods and religious beliefs and what have you, there were no what we would call secularists. Right. But there also wasn't a ton of plurality as far as culture groups worshiping the same God. It's one of the astounding things in the New Testament church is that, you know, you have for the first time, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, worshiping, you know, people all across the Mediterranean um, subscribing to a monotheistic religion. That is not the case in the ancient Near East. And so truly to marry a foreign woman was to marry a pagan. Correct. Generally speaking. And even the women in Jesus's genealogy, you can argue, and I heard you mention to Clayton last week that Bathsheba was also a Hittite. It's it's an argument made from silence either which way. She's married to one. Um, uh, same with Rahab. We know that she is not an Israelite. Ruth is actually not an exception to this. No, she's a Moabite. Because she's a Moabite who converts... Yeah, so no, your people. She tells she tells her mother-in-law. She tells Naomi, "Your people will become my people. Your God will become my God." So right. it is actually true of her prior to that point in the story of Ruth that she is a pagan who is converting to the Israelite religion. So I bring that up to say, yeah, it was not a mandate against cultural intermarriage in a vacuum. And so here's the ethical point that we need to just say while we're talking about this, that people who cite Deuteronomy 7, Ezra, or 2 Corinthians 6 do not be unequally yoked as grounds for inter people should not intermarry. It's wrong. And, you know, it smacks of racism, among other things, you know, especially when you start talking about do not be unequally yoked. It's like, OK, well, who's higher on the totem pole here, me or the person of color that I'd like to marry? Right. or vice versa. So that we want to steer clear of that and be and make sure we specify that to be a foreigner from the Israelite perspective pretty much meant you worshiped somebody who was not Yahweh and that's why you were not to marry them. And that ended up proving true. And so I guess I want to say this because I could carry on about it. When God says in the 10 commandments, also in Deuteronomy but also in Exodus, that we're not to have other gods because the Lord your God is a jealous God. And then we understand, particularly in the exile and also with the help of the wisdom literature, such as Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, when we understand that one of the most dominant metaphors for how Israel understood their relationship to Yahweh and vice versa was that of a marriage. Your maker is your husband, the Lord says in Isaiah. I take God's or the prophet's instruction of mass divorce from foreign women, not so much as divorce your wife, but ditch your mistress. 
it's um, hmm, it's a vulgar reading. Um, this is it also, why it, it also doesn't put much value on the actual certificate of marriage. So sure. like in, in today's world, if you were going to take that reading in today's world, does the actual certificate of marriage and yet the impending certificate of divorce, does it actually matter? That's the question you're left with with your reading, is it not? More or less. Um, it just strikes me. And, and so I guess I need to just cards on the table. I I don't, I do not think that God had nothing to do with it. I just don't know that the narrative invites that. And I don't know that the Old Testament really endorses, well, because God didn't expressly say, tell them to get divorced, that means therefore they shouldn't. The kicker for me is that, one, Ezra is not depicted in the text as kind of a vulgar, cruel prophet. And the exilic texts are packed full of those people. And even prophets like Jeremiah false prophets, people who are lying to the people are constantly decried. I mean, he's yeah. he's depicted as somebody who is grieved by what he interprets to be covenant unfaithfulness. And as the result of prayer and fasting, decides in obedience to the law to instruct those who've married foreign women to, to divorce them. And there are parts of the text thinking of Jephthah sacrificing his daughter in Judges, where he just does it and God doesn't tell him not to, but you're supposed to interpret that God clearly didn't want him to do that. Well, I think so that, that, yeah, that story is hard because he just says, God, if you let me win this battle, I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice the first, first person that walks out of my house. Right. And it's his daughter. And so you're left to think, does the Lord God want him to sacrifice his daughter? He didn't say he didn't, but the answer is clearly no. I think it's clearly no. Well, I, w- I would agree with you, but then, and, and it's a, a bit of a side question, but I think it's relevant to the overall conversation. It, it does bring in the question of God's providence, that if God really didn't want that to happen, sure, then, then why not, you know, not, not to put people within a hierarchy, but why yeah. not have a slave walk out? Sure. Like, why not have someone that's not... Yeah, and why, have a, and why have a serpent in your garden? I mean, it's, it's that... I, it, it's a fair, yeah. And why, and why question will... when they need you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a fair question. Um, so I, I just can't land on that place of, yeah, God had nothing to do with this, but it, it has most everything to do with everything I've said. I think that divorcing foreign wives, which are depicted as kind of de facto um, stumblers, you know, that, that, that they're causing the people of Israel to be unfaithful, that's coming in the context of renewing covenant vows, as it were, to their covenant Lord. And so, yeah, I see that if exiled Israel is depicted as an adulterer, and this is a vehicle for that, then I see a jealous God calling his spouse back home from her, whatever the male version of a mistress is. So this is why, if we can be candid about your experience and then talk about some other things, I'm actually surprised you don't recognize like God as a defrauded spouse. Actually, who is willing to who's willing to go to shocking lengths to be reunited with his people? Yeah, so I actually do read God that way, and the the telltale for me is actually that 
God says, you know, you're an adulterous people, you're an adulterous generation, that, that God, and, and for me, having been cheated on and replaced, um, that's the deal is that when you're cheated on, you become the most expendable person in your right. most significant other's life, which I do think is how God feels when they have other gods before him. The, the reason that I can't get where you are is because I prayed so hard that God would restore yeah. my marriage and it never happened. Yeah. Um, and honestly, now I've reached this place where I'm not really sure that I want it to happen. Um, right. But I mean, there's just so much pain there and uh, all those things. I, I don't think I want to go down that road. But mm-hmm. um, for seven months, I prayed in the yeah. words of Paul without ceasing that that might happen. And yet God was seemingly, and I will say that, boldly seemingly absent from any act of restoration for my marriage yeah now god was still abundantly active in my life and the the things that he was doing he just was not active there and so yes i do read god as the scorned spouse but at the same point if god is the scorned spouse god makes sure that he's taken care of Mm -hmm when his spouse needs to return, you've also, we haven't talked to Lick about Hosea, right? Which that entire poem is that kind of same relationship. And yet God did not do that for me. Sure. So once again, I, and that's why I say your reading is the more faithful reading because I'm clearly reading out of my experience, which I just, I can't not. Of course you can't. I mean, it's yeah. Especially with how fresh it is. Um, but the Hosea thing's interesting, it just even still, because it goes to show if Ezra shows us the lengths to which God is willing to go to be restored to his people, and we can talk about that some, then Hosea shows the kind of people God is willing to be restored to. You know, it's the classic, like, I don't need you to clean yourself up. I just need you to come home, like that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and we can and do it, that when you really get here. Is, it really is the story of the prodigal son. I mean, that, that's, that's what that story is. Yeah. Now, interestingly, to your narrative, and because part of it, we said we were going to speak canonically about, about all of this. For me, part of it is, is Paul very clearly says, don't, don't divorce your spouse just because they don't believe. If mm-hmm. they want to leave, let them go. That's fine. Yeah. But don't divorce your spouse and yet Ezra and Nehemiah are saying, no, get them out of here because they don't believe. Yeah. And I think for me, even, you know, we're talking about the law, you know, for me, something that personally within me has all, I've always struggled with is the Jacob and Esau story. Jacob, I love sure. Esau, I hated. Well, even before the law is given in Genesis, do you remember what happens in like Genesis, whatever it is, 27, 28, I think. Um, it tells who Jacob marries. And then it just has this little blurb. Once again, I think Ezra and Nehemiah put it in there. It's like, oh, and Esau married the, the girl from the people group that his dad told him not to. So yeah, I hate him now. It's, it's not that bold, but it, yeah. it feels that way. When you read it narratively, it's like, wait, that, that feels yeah. a bit out of place. Yeah. And so all of it, to answer your question in, in long form, I do read God as the scorned spouse. But yet God seems to do things for himself that he didn't do for me and others whom I've met on this journey mm-hmm. of figuring out what it, what it means. Yeah. And so for me, it leads me to a place of asking the question of God's providence. Right? Yeah. 
what at what point is God's quote unquote power or providence limited? Um, and if so, what limits that providence and power? Yeah, I think it's probably important to differentiate between the things God is capable of doing and the things we're capable of doing. And even for all this talk about God's, you know, beckoning his wife, as it were, to leave who she's cheating with to return to him, you could make a case they do not. You know, if you just want to think Christologically about this, that it takes Christ representing the bride to then restore the bride to the father, so to speak. So in a way, in a way, God doesn't get what he wants. um, But just in the, you know, pericoretic fellowship of the Trinity, God then gets what he wants. Um, He, he, his son becomes Israel, becomes the faithful bride so that we can then become a part of the bride. Right. I, and we can find some other ways to talk about marriage too. I I talk about the links God is willing to go to, to be restored to his spouse for this reason. Say you use the translation of the Bible that has Malachi saying, I hate divorce. um, That has God saying in Malachi. I use NRSV. I don't know what it says for that text. The That's English Standard not, Version does not have God saying, I hate divorce. This is actually, ooh, this, will be an, this will be an interesting lesson, which I think he does. So I don't want to take that yeah. to say like, well, uh, our, listeners uh, know, our listeners know I'm not a fan of ESV at all. Well, you know. To each their own for sure. But I've not read the um, Malachi text in the ESV. So the English Standard Version, when I was scribbling down some notes, I thought, oh, this is interesting. God says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. But they footnote for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, and it says, who hates and divorces. So even then, they're giving the agency of that hatred to the man instead of the Lord God saying, I hate divorce. That's one of those things where even if that's what the ESV says— and I know the NRSV and others depart from that. I think that God does hate divorce. What verse was that? Uh, chapter 2, verse 16. 2, 16. Yeah, so the NRSV says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of right. Israel, and covering one's garment with violence. Right, right. Which well, I think is true. Well, and it is interesting for me. This text specifically is interesting for me because the, the coupling there is divorce with violence. Right. We know from the Noah story that God himself says he hates the violence. Mm-hmm. But then enacts violence in the Canaanite conquest. So if you really like when you try to put the narrative together, these and, and it, it makes sense. Right. Yeah. It, it, it really makes sense how these things go hand in hand as you read the story. Yeah. Well, but, there's got to just be things. Up. And this is not a podcast on the Canaanite conquest, but it's related to if we want to say God had a hand in mass divorce of foreign wives, there's got to be things God's allowed to do by virtue of being God. If it's true, what God says in Genesis verse 15 about when he will give the land to the Israelites, it will have to be after a certain amount of time because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete implying that the conquests are an act of judgment. Well, but isn't this it doesn't so- resolve the problem, but we don't get to just ignore 
is God allowed to enact judgment on cruel and violent cultures? Because I think people suffering in the 21st century, as well as however many centuries BC, sure hope that the answer to that question is yes. And so same thing with the issue of mass divorce. Is God allowed to be jealous for his people and do shocking things to ensure that they return to him? Because if the answer to that question is yes, then now the gospel becomes a little more clear. Because remember, I told you when we talked about this, part of why I want to read it that way, and I'm even comfortable with saying, yeah, I think God probably A-OK'd mass divorce to be restored to his people. If God hates divorce, I bet he really hates death. And I don't think it's a straw man to say it is amazing that to be restored to his people once and for all, Christ dies. Yeah. So the ultimate God thing hating is something to God himself. Yeah. yeah. So here's maybe where we can start getting into some just questions of how to be a spouse. That God so longs to be with his spouse and that he is so faithful to his spouse despite their chronic unfaithfulness. This is kind of an overstatement, but you'll get it. He would sooner die yeah, than, yeah, fair. than and, um, and then Paul has the gall to tell us in Ephesians 5, verse 1, to be imitators of God. Yeah. And so, and this is to your point, and, you know, just as far as pulling the curtain back on behind the podcast, just what we talked about when stuff really hit the fan with, with um, you and, and your soon-to-be ex-wife, um, as far as being an imitator of God is concerned, you did your part. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I did to the best that someone, and you helped me do this, right? You're like, I remember, so when I went on sabbatical um, for a week in July, I went to Andrew's house. I stayed at Andrew's house before they had the baby. And I remember you just telling me like, yeah, we're called to be imitators of Christ, but if, if you could be Christ, you wouldn't need Christ. And so to the best of my ability, I do, I do think I imitated Christ as much as Hunter would have allowed me to do so, to be present and try to restore and do, make the hard decisions to fight and do all I could. And by the way, you mentioned this, not all the exiles came back. That is true. Not you all know, of them did. Yeah, that's God, didn't, God did not get, in many ways, his whole wife back well, and so even the idea well you know god kind of worked it out in his favor not really um if it was if israel was you remember he tells abraham either in genesis 15 or 17 look at the stars you'll have as many descendants if right. that's what they were he got a constellation back you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah, <laughs> got yeah. orion's belt that's yeah. what you got and so even you know there's a part of this and, and i don't want this to just be all about your experience because lord knows you think about these things enough already but even you know that despite your prayers restoration didn't happen in a very real way that was true of yahweh and his spouse as well fair fair yeah very very fair um i think i just i bring that up to say this spouses who feel defrauded by their spouse which 
has to, it's, it's literally an incomprehensible pain for me because I'm in a healthy marriage. And I don't say that to gloat. I just, you know, when, when Sarah does something I don't appreciate, I don't feel defrauded or yeah. small. Right. I just feel kind of grumpy. Yeah. You know? yeah. You're, you're cranky. But from people in my life, present company included, who have witnessed that either with their own marriage or like with a parent who was cheated on, it is utterly excruciating pain and pain that God knows. I would agree with that a hundred percent. And so, you know, as far as this is not so much ethical as devotional, but someone navigating a divorce, God knows what it is like to be severed to from his love, his people, his spouse. Um, so that even if I don't get the answers I want, it's kind of what we say about suffering all the time that, um, I'm content just knowing the spirit is present Yeah, when just in seasons of pain that God cares. What is man that you are mindful of him and that the Holy Spirit is praying with utterings too deep for words, those sorts of things. And so I don't think, you know, here's an Andrewism. Uh, it may not count for everything, but it certainly doesn't count for nothing. Just knowing that the creator God of the cosmos has been divorced <laughs> If you want to like really oversimplify it, and that's what Jeremiah says, right? That God yeah. gave Israel a, a writ of divorce. So it, it is yeah. there, but it also yields yourself. And this is to all of our listeners more so than this to Andrew. Don't, don't think that one facet of your experience can somehow be objectively removed from the rest of your theology. Sure. When you go through this and you go, okay, well, now what do I do with this? You, you begin to read the text and you, you hear God's pain in the language and you go, okay, God gets my pain. And so if God does get my pain, not to be crass, but why the hell isn't he doing anything? Yeah. And so what you end up finding yourself, and Andrew, we, I don't know that we've had this conversation, but I've kind of landed in a very like Jürgen Moltmann kind of God's self limitate voluntary self limitation of his power in order to experience and suffer with his people. Mm. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ended there. Um, but that, because what ends up happening is if, if you believe statements like Malachi, God hates divorce. If you believe things like where Jesus says, don't get divorced on any grounds except, you know, for adultery, but yet, I did this and, you know, you read the Hosea story. Like if you really go down that road and you, you really try to embrace that, then you ask the question, okay, why didn't God do this? Yeah. And so then you end up having this battle within yourself, the question of God's goodness versus God's power. Yeah. And I've wrestled with that question, my God, for 10 years almost. And for me, it's just, I, I can't sacrifice the goodness of God. Sure. Which, unfortunately, based on my experience, which is why we say all the time, the Wesleyan quadrilaterals, quadrilateral, not equilateral, um, is extremely problematic. I mean, just yeah. the entire thing is problematic. And yeah. especially because, I mean, this book we know is edited, you know, hundreds of times and they're you know arguably almost a thousand contributors to this darn thing and it's holy and it's amazing and god speaks through it but it also leaves a lot to be filled in 
because we don't get, I mean, that's the, and that's the thing I love about Hosea, right? Hosea goes through some trauma. And that, I think that's more my problem with both of these, the, the Canaanite conquest narratives and the commanding of the mass divorces. God asks his people to go through trauma. I mean, and inflict it, you know, yeah. to your point. Yeah. And so when you go through that trauma, you just, I mean, you're just asking for more pain and what Paul would personify as death mm. on behalf of God. Yeah. And it just creates this, this little bit of a dilemma that, yeah. that you have to wrestle with. And that's why I want to bring Andrew on because he's found sure. a way to be faithful to, yeah. or more faithful than I am to the, to the text and, and what it's communicating. Yeah. Well, it is trauma in the interest of faithfulness to God, which even Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, and Richard Hayes makes this point in the moral vision, at the end of the day, despite his pretty radical departure from parts of the Old Testament and kind of radical additions to the teachings of Jesus, which he actually quotes. We don't get a ton of just Jesus quotations in Paul, but we actually get one in 2 Corinthians 7. He still ends up landing in the place that at the end of the day, faithfulness to God takes precedence over faithfulness to an unbelieving spouse. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's why he says you can walk away. Yeah. Like if they and, want to leave, let them leave. And Paul's ambiguous for what it's worth because the same Paul who penned that penned in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. For you know, I'm paraphrasing because what business do you have with them? And so, you know, hard, though, because you're I mean, when we read that, we're presupposing on them that these were Christians that then got married to sure. spouses, which in all likelihood there are people who are already married and pagans, yeah. and then they convert. That's certainly what he's that's talking about stuff. in 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah. Yeah. But even, and that's weird because it's in the context of him encouraging everyone to remain as they are. Right. And so interpret that text literally carefully, because that's the same passage where he tells slaves to remain as they are with the little parenthetical notes yeah. about, but if you have the opportunity yeah, to be yeah, free, you know, yeah. shoot your shot. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a unique Pauline chapter, that's for sure. And he seems and he seems to know that he's making some that he's taking some pastoral liberties. Excuse me. As he says, you hear not, that? I that was gross. Do, do that. <laughs> but he is taking pastoral liberties, as he says, yeah. not I not the Lord says, but I say. And so I think he gives us a window even to understand kind of some of the things we're talking about. And it's just that life. And concepts like sovereignty, goodness, power, whatever, are far more complicated than we in our lowest moments would like them to be. Because what do we do, right? And you and I have talked about this some, well, we haven't talked about it since you've been going through intense trauma, but like how many times in your career working in congregations or now with Wellhouse, have you seen people in seasons of hardship default to this kind of pop Calvinism where now all of a sudden God is in control of everything and he's doing all these things or he's not doing these things. But before that, we understood that, yeah, uh, it's a little more complicated unless you are just a determinist. And I don't know that a lot of listeners. It's escapism. Right. I, I don't want, I, I can't, right. I've already taken all the guilt that I can take. I, I need somebody else to be in control for the outcome. Cause I almost went there. 
Sure. I, like, you know me, like I can't stand Calvinistic or deterministic theology. Uh, I'm much more, I would, I, I don't think I'm there fully, but I, I'm much closer to like an open theist kind of theological system than I would be to any kind of determinist system. But like it, it's, it, you, you've already taken all the guilt of the most pain and trauma and all the things that you've just kind of absorbed as your fault. You can't take any more of that on. So you've got to be able to place the blame back to God. It's like, oh, well, God's in control now. So whatever happens is God's will. And it's right. like, well, actually, maybe that's not actually what's happening here. Right. And this is why um, people kind of default to Job when they're talking about these kinds of things. Yeah. But truly, that is a book without a resolution. You know, it's all of his friends and we need to clarify that this is still kind of about mayor, but it's particularly about people going through the trauma of yeah. what you've gone through. It's, I don't want listeners to think we're just kind of departing to a theology of the old Testament. Um, but it's a book totally without a resolution. You've got Job's so-called friends trying to offer neat and tidy answers for why these things are happening to Job. It's perhaps because you've sinned or because this or because that. And the only answer we really get in the end of Job is that that's wrong, you know, yeah. that, that it's not that neat and tidy. But when in Job 42, I think it's Job 42, when God finally speaks and the very first question he asks Job is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? At one level, I do think that is God kind of reminding Job who is God and who is Job, because Job's pretty bold by the end of his final speech. Well, but, but at another level, all laments are that way. Yeah. But at another level, as God proceeds to articulate in pretty magisterial language, what it takes to govern the cosmos, Fair. I think in the end, we're invited to recognize and accept even if that acceptance sometimes involves the weeping and gnashing of teeth, that life, earth, and even God's so-called control of both of those things is a little more complicated than bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. That sort of, which, you know, if you wanted to break Job, the problem of Job down into its simplest terms, that's basically what his friends are accusing him of. Well, you've, you've clearly done something to deserve this. Um, and you see that in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned that caused this man to be blind? Um, it's not that simple. And in fact, Jesus says this happened so that this would create an opportunity for the power of God to be shown, which is canonical. You intended me harm, but God intended it for good for the saving of many lives. That sort of thing. It is. But even in a conversation about marriage and family, I think the Job story is relevant because it is a you know, it is a traumatic event, but also in the story, if you're looking for an outcome, the outcome is that God thinks people are expendable because God just magically gives Job a whole new family. Like we're not supposed to think that Job's <laughs> mourning the loss of his former right. family. Right. It, it's like, wait, no, I didn't No, I'm not sure I really signed up for this. Thanks. But sure. like, what about my kids that died? Yeah. And what about this? wrench that you left with me like is she the is she yeah. still around like what her curse on? god and die yeah. yeah just curse god and die yeah 
it is a it is a book without any kind of a tidy conclusion. Um, but I bring it up to say the thing that it leaves us in a position to just have to accept or else leave Job alone is that these simplistic understandings of the way God functions in his sovereignty, if you want to use the theological term, is not near as clear cut as we would like it. And as Tim Keller often puts it, if it were, I don't want a God that I can comprehend. Mm. I want a God I can trust. Um, I don't have to get him. I just need to know that I can trust him. And even knowing that he can relate to my trauma, in this case, the trauma of an unfaithful spouse, that evokes a lot of confidence. The same way it does in friendships. You know, this guy gets it. Uh, I can confide in him because he's been there. And that's true of God for spouses who are suffering from the trauma of a spouse who has been unfaithful. And I even think in a real way, God understands the pain of a spouse that remains unfaithful. Because just think of people who, boy, you want to get existential here, perish not knowing Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think, well, that's not entirely true. I, I don't disagree with the heart for where you're coming from by any means. Um, and I honestly, it, and I, I stand by you know, we talked on the phone earlier and I told you I was going to call yours the more faithful reading of the text. Um, I feel more secure in calling it that now. Um, I do think it is probably the more faithful reading of the text. I do. I mean, as much as I still have hurdles to jump in my reading, you still have hurdles to jump in yours, right? Sure. We haven't really, I mean, touched all of the canon in this, but I think you know, have, have you been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Oh yeah. Oh my God. Good it, stuff. It's a good podcast. Oh, it's amazing. We'll talk about it off air, but <laughs> it, in there, you know, one of the, one of the lines in the intro is that it's a story about the mystery of God. I, I really think that a lot of this comes up to the mystery of God and not in, not in some kind of like, Oh, well, God knows better than I do or Isaiah 55, eight, nine, like not in that kind of way, but just in that, like, look, if we're honest, we've got, we've got a book that's inspired and is, is our holy book, but it's written across many cultures, many generations. And it's got a lot of different stories in it. And we're trying to kind of piece it together based upon the character of God. And that's my qualm hmm. is that I feel like these questions about marriage, divorce, violence, all of these things, we have stories that contradict the character of God. Yeah. And, and so I think, as I said, yours is definitely more faithful reading, but each have things that need be further explored and, and wrestled with and reconciled. Yeah. But until then, and, possibly forever. This is a story of the mystery of God. Yeah. Well, you're in a place, you'll know this is well-meaning, not malicious, where if the Wesleyan quadrilateral is not an equilateral, then what is kind of governing your reading in this season is actually not the scripture part. 
It's the experience part. It, at least in this category. At yeah. least in this category. What and, you know, I don't I don't mean that ugly. No, it's no, just no. that's what that's what trauma does. You know, yeah. David on his best days, he writes Psalm 23. On his worst days, he writes the beginning of Psalm 22. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. and both of those made the canon. So yeah. there's space for our best days and our worst days, canonically oh, speaking. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think, you know, when we talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, we say all the time that scripture gets 26%. The rest get 24.33333%. I'd at least give it 70. No. Bunch, I, of, bunch of liberals. I know. I know. You bleeding liberals. Yeah. That's what we say all the time. The scripture gets 26% of the quadrilateral. And I think I'm faithfully reading it to 26%. But look, I mean, you, this is a series called God and Ethic. And when you make up something about God, I'm just convinced that your ethic is actually the litmus test of what you actually think about God. How much suffering are you really willing to endure for what you theologically conceive of being God? Mm. And as you go about that, you learn a lot about yourself. Mm. You also learn a lot about how you view God. And I would venture to say that it's in these moments that God shapes your view of him. Mm. Because you have a view of God and you say, well, God, if you are God of restoration, if you're a God of redemption, you must restore or redeem my marriage. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I do with these pieces that are left when mm-hmm. God doesn't do that? Well, I can't just get rid of God. I mean, that would be an option, but now I've got to just largely ignore all these moments and experiences of divinity that I know true to my heart. And so what do you do? Well, God uses that time to refine you into getting a new view of God. Hmm.